This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. That means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Guys, this is so bad. I started to work out routine again. (laughs) And, And when I take my hand and I go like this, like just barely above my head, it hurts. So I think the answer is I need to stop working out. Yeah. What do you think? Usually doctors say, you know, where does it hurt? And you tell them and they're like, well, then don't do that. Right. <laughs> it hurts when I lift my arm. Don't lift your arm. You remember that David Tell joke when he's like, the reason he doesn't run is because runners are the ones that always find the dead body. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he's like, you know, you know, you're never sitting there on the sofa watching uh, X-Files and all of a sudden you see the hand under the sofa. So maybe I got to go back to not working out. Stop working out. But you know what's cool? I was able to work out because... We had another safe weekend. So I think we need a toast. If I can get my, can I, can I get my mug all the way up to the, what is that? What does that say, Doug? I can't this is the, I, this is the return of the world's ugliest mug that OG gave me. I don't think I got it you is, that one. You did. This is the gone fishing mug. Do you remember the episode where right before we started recording, I dropped my coffee on the floor and the mug shattered. You guys loved it. You thought it was hilarious. Meanwhile, I've got like second degree burns. And oh. I, I lost my favorite mug. And so OG thought he'd be really cool and nice, and he sent me a mug. Looks pretty awesome. And it this three D. If you're not disgusting, if you're not watching this on YouTube, you're missing this. Yeah, it's uh, time to look at the handle is even supposedly like a a stick or a twig. Deer antler. Everybody's like, everybody's like, are we going to salute the troops or not? So we we do we want to salute the troops on behalf of the and our mystery guest. Joining us here, who we'll introduce here in a second. Toasted on behalf with a rum of and Coke. <laughs> the Men and Women Making Podcast in Mom's Basement is 6 a.m. with a rum and Coke. And the Men and Women at Navy Federal Credit Union, big salute to our troops for keeping us safe. Let's all go stack some Benjamins together now, shall we? Ooh, right. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. Look. This is hot, Ray. Symmetrical book stacking, just like the Philadelphia Man's Turbulence of 1947. You're right. No human being would stack books like this listen you smell something live from joe's mom's basement it's the stacking benjamin show Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it's time to help you make more money because today we welcome a guy inspiring our newest entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs, Charles McCarrick. 
Plus, we welcome a special guest co-host, the guy responsible for campfire retreats happening across America, Stephen Boyer. And don't worry, we'll also share a thoughtful headline, throw in a TikTok minute, and answer a lucky listener question, all for no extra fee. And are you sitting down? But wait, there's more. (laughs) Of course there's more. I'll also share some absolutely amazing trivia. And now, two guys who are the entrepreneurs behind this podcast, and another guy who's the entrepreneur behind CampFi, it's Joe OG and Stephen Boyer! And a happy Monday, stackers. Welcome back to the Stacky Benjamin Show. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And before we introduce again our special guest, nice job there, Doug. Uh, let's introduce the gentleman who rides shotgun on every podcast that we do, Mr. OG. How are you on a Monday, my friend? <clears throat> Fantastic. Thank you for asking. <laughs> There's always a pause when you ask him that. Like, he has to think about it. What should I say? What do I really want to One say? One guy that can bring down the energy on a Monday morning reliably. <laughs> hey, OG, how you doing, man? It's an awesome day. Isn't it a great Monday? Meh. Yeah. Meh. It's maybe a five. So maybe, oh, gee, we need to oh, go. Oh, they can say it's a mid. It's a mid? Not, it's a mid. It's mid. It's mid. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? I know. It's of course, mid. I just heard the phrase riz, or the, the, the term riz, like a few days ago. I feel no, like, I welcome know. to the guys who are 100 years old podcast. Joe Salci, hi. It's not mid. Yeah, let's, inter- podcast let's introduce the guy. Who's doing the hippest thing, OG? He's doing the hippest thing. He's getting people together to talk about financial independence. <laughs> Does he swear? No, I said to be square. Oh, to be square. Hip. To be square. Oh, okay. to be square. Also curious if he swears, but I mean wait, that's, a, yes. that's a different reason. That's exactly what the hip people do. They they make Huey Lewis in the news references. But uh, a guy who's way cooler than Huey Lewis in the news, Stephen Boyer's here. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. How are you guys? Uh, you're probably already wondering what the hell you're doing here is what's going on, I would think, I'm right? I'm just enjoying the show. <laughs> well, let's talk about the show because we've got a big show coming to Northern Texas early next month. You're bringing some very special guests to your Texas version of Camp Fi. Yeah. So Camp Fi is just a, it's a retreat, like weekend retreat for people who want to hang out, um, who are, talk about some financial independence, lifestyle design, things like that. Uh, but really, it's just a fun getaway with cool people. We have one in Texas coming up next month. Usually try to have like four speakers. We're going to have Paul Thompson. Who? He's Paul, a big real estate entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. Paul's going to be there. Um, Roger Whitney. Never heard of retirement him. answer man. All right. Well, I'm just going to say the name and you could just go right there with the description. <laughs> You're good. This is awesome. Um, and Cody Garrett, Cody Garrett, uh, CFP who we see on Twitter all the time, lighten up the Twitter sphere. Right. And then there's this other guy. Uh, I can't remember his name. Oh, probably horrible. Uh, probably. Jo- uh, jo- let me, I got it. I got it written down here. Joel. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That guy. Oh my goodness. But let's talk for just a second, Stephen, about Camp Fi. And I'm so glad you're here riding along with us today. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Camp Fi, but how did you get this thing started? This all branched out from, uh, Camp Mustache, I think, Mr. Money Mustache's uh, uh, camp. Yeah. I, like a lot of people, sort of jumped down the financial independence rabbit hole, starting with Mr. Money Mustache article that came across my feed at some point. 
became a fan of the blog, as many other people have, and realized there was a retreat up in Washington State. So I did that back in 2016, had a great time, thought, man, I'm in Georgia, and uh, that's a long way to go. Uh, so I was like, you know, let's let's try to bring one a little closer to home. So I asked permission, could I, could I do a camp mustache branded camp down in Florida? They said, absolutely. It was great. We had 38 people show up in January of 2017 for the first camp that I did. And after that, we talked, we all talked about maybe now that we had one in the Northwest, we had one in the Southeast, we talked about sort of servicing all the other regions to make it more accessible for more people. Understandably, the organizers didn't really want to take that burden on. So I just um, took it on myself, changed the name and ran with it. Now, that's how Camp Fi was born. And you've got them all over. The first one I went to was uh, Camp Fi Southwest. And then uh, I'm going to Camp Fi, Texas. You have Southeast. There's one along the Atlantic coast. So, uh, Camp Fi Midwest is another big one. And of course, uh, Rocky Mountain always seems to get a lot of people. Yeah, we have them everywhere. I think we have six locations, eight camps. So wherever you are, there should be one pretty close or close enough to you to where you can you can make it. What's cool about these events, OG, is they're really not about the speakers. It's really more about the camaraderie. Clearly. <laughs> Definitely not about this. You guys Bottom of the attend. barrel is where you reach to get to get one of them anyway. You guys should attend, even though I'm going to be there. Uh, OG, you will love this. Uh, we're out. It's it, it's like a camper treat, and you know you sleep on a mattress like this thick, very mm-hmm. may, maybe an inch or two, and uh, spend the weekend on that. What do you sounds, think? Sounds just like a Four Seasons. So, sounds exactly. Uh, Steven, uh, OG wants to know what the room service is like. Is yes. the room service good? Is there a bell of some kind that can be rung to acquire coffee? Like how to, how to, yeah, what's yeah. The- I have, um, I have a uniform that I wear. I'll give you my phone number, just whatever you need. <laughs> you know, I'll be right there at your beck and call. Just uh, text me. I'll be there. Spa services. Seconds. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll include a link by the way to campfire in our show notes at stackybenjamins, uh, com. But I think if people just go to, to, uh, what's our URL here, Steven, uh, org. Yeah, campfi.org, O-R-G, campfi.org, and uh, you'll see all the camps that uh, are scheduled. Awesome. Come hang out with Roger Whitney and I and Stephen and about 45 other uh, new friends. And we got Stephen here riding shotgun with us. We got OG, we got Doug, we got Charles McCarrick waiting upstairs in the wings, man. He is an entrepreneur who's going to talk about lessons he learned from his brother's but before all that, Stephen, did, did we tell you like what the rules of the road are here before we started? No. Do you want to run, run down real quick? Yeah. Hey, you have to sit down, which you're already doing, I see. And you got to listen to this first. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Do you got it? Doug, I don't think he's got it. Hold on, Stephen. Let's do that. Here's another one. Well, now you got your to-do list, don't you? You're ready to go dive in and be better at money than you were 
an hour ago when you started listening to the show. And you know what? For a great partner, become a member at Navy Federal Credit Union because becoming a member at Navy Federal could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. Well, when you're thinking about debt, as I've said before, a lot of people have debt. Very few people have a debt strategy. Well, with Navy Federal, you could borrow up to 100% of your home equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Make the plan, choose the best option because both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required, terms and conditions apply, loan subject to approval. Now do you got it, Stephen? I got it. Awesome. All right. Time for us to roll. Let's go. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from the Wall Street Journal, and it's a piece, OG, that you found written by Shane Shiflett and Ben Foldy. Uh, this popular crowdfunding company, popular fintech company called CrowdStreet is in the news. The headline says missing millions and a rabbinical arbitrator real estate deal gone bad hits popular crowdfunder. Tell me what's going on here, OG. Yeah, I came across this, I don't know, maybe about a week ago or so. And it caught my eye because of the whole idea of crowdfunding and everybody just slobbering all over how great real estate is, not recognizing that at some point in time, you know, there's cycles in the market. And what makes real estate, in my opinion, super attractive is the fact that you can do it with leverage. You can go buy a million dollar property for $200,000 of cash. And so you get the growth and so on and so forth on the million. But when you get over levered or the market doesn't behave them in the manner in which you want, there's some downsides to that. We've talked about a number of times on the show about different companies that, uh, you know, kind of sound too good to be true. When companies' advertisements are always about the, all of the good and none of the bad, none of the risk that you're taking from an investment standpoint, you know, uh, my spidey sense tingles a little bit, so to speak, right? Well, the antenna we goes up and you're just kind of like, what's going on here? We we profiled one of these companies uh, just a few weeks ago called uh, Roots. And we even ah, said at the yes, time, we don't think that this company is a ripoff. We just think that the founder is overly emphasizing what can go right and not telling investors enough of what could possibly go wrong. And when you have something like real estate, the fact that bad things can happen is true. This piece starts off, uh, the writers say, one of the biggest platforms that promised to give small investors access to major real estate projects, missed red flags, and funneled cash into firms that fabricated their past. That's not a good look. Now it's facing deals gone bust, where $63 million of customer cash has gone missing. CrowdStreet raised $4 billion for property developers by touting big returns, but many deals fell short. Uh, Stephen, I want to bring you into this conversation because as, as a person that invests, you know, we've seen the last several years, we've seen this fintech craze, right? A lot of people investing with smaller fintech firms. Have you seen this at Camp Fi, where people spend time talking about getting into some of these cool fintech ideas. 
I haven't heard it being brought up in like group discussions, but we've had people talk about the uh, crowdsourced real estate funding options, yeah, um, REITs, and also. But yeah, I mean, it's not hasn't been a major component of discussion as far as I've seen over the, the past few years. Yeah, I know that there's been some people that run syndications. Up, uh, well, Paul, who's going to be there with us, is a guy who who syndicates real estate investments. But I've known Paul for a long time. Paul always talks about what could possibly go wrong in investing. It seems to me, though, that people kind of look past the stuff that could go wrong, Stephen. Like, like even if they tell us, we're like, no, 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 what could possibly go wrong? Right. And so, you know, I was looking up to the little research. I saw that it's ultra, I think they tend to target ultra high net worth people for these projects, these investments. And so maybe it's just a different mindset. Like, I don't think that I'm sitting across the table from ultra high net worth people uh, too much at Camp Fi. So maybe it's some mindset of the people who sort of they're super optimistic, you know, think bad things can't happen. If it does, they can just take the hit. You know, maybe they're in a different place mentally or emotionally when it comes to investing versus uh, most normal, um, I'll say normal investors. You know, the interesting thing about a lot of these projects, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding type of deals is that everybody who is kind of the middle-class millionaire thinks that this is how ultra high net worth people invest. And that's not how it is at all. If you look at the vast majority of net worth of 10, $20 million net worth people, it's mostly in business assets. The vast majority of net worth of, you know, your, your traditional, <laughs> traditional 10 to $200 million net worth person isn't in syndicated real estate deals, or it isn't in private equity and hedge funds. But what happens is the middle-class millionaire seems to think that this is the only way to get invested. This is the, this is the way all the cool kids are doing it. And so that becomes the siren song of like, well, we can get you invested in this cool stuff for the low, low price of only 25K. And you can invest 25 grand and be with the big guys, so to speak. And the reality is, is that that's not really what happens. Yeah. And so it's the little guy who gets who gets hosed in any bad deals. And that's why I got excited, Stephen, about this topic and you is because, you know, the the conversations I experienced at Camp Fi's were about the investment should be boring, right? There's You got all these people at Camp Fi after Camp Fi talking about how, hey, I made it there, but with none of this sexiness at all. Yeah. The typical financial independence community uh, approach is, you know, the VTSAX, the broad-based index funds, you know, those types of things are a high percentage of someone's portfolio. And so, yeah, they might have play money and maybe that's, you know, play money for some of the 10 to 20 millionaires is much more than considered what would be considered play money for a lot of us. So again, that perspective might be different. You know, even in the FI community, people, you know, will say focus mainly on these boring investments, like Joe was saying, but have a little fun. If you can afford to go and, you know, play around, you know, it's like the equivalent of going and buying a lottery ticket in a way. Like, you know, there's an entertainment side of it, this fun, exciting upside. But if you lose a few bucks, then it's not going to hurt you a whole lot. But like this article here, they're talking about what, 60, 63 million went missing. And, uh, and I think with some deals in Atlanta and Miami, $63 million went missing. Well, there's a $4 billion platform. That's what, under 2%. So that's just a bad day on the stock market. Right. So for if you're looking at it from the four billion perspective, but if you're looking at it from like the these are sixty three million dollars and that's a lot a lot for most people to kind of um, 
it's all about perspective. You know, that $63 million seems like a lot to a lot of people, but if you're looking at a pot of 4 billion, it's But it's, it's not, not 63 million of one person's 4 billion. That represents Correct. that $60 million in this particular case represents probably the vast majority of life sum total investments for, you know, mom and pop investor who had a hundred grand and went, this is all I've got. And so I'm going to, I'm going to invest this, you know what I mean? Exactly. And so you're right. $60 million against 4 billion. It's like, well, that's just a crappy yeah. day, but. Yo, oh yeah. I, I'm not saying is I'm agreeing with you. I yeah. get that. I'm just saying from the management side of the company. Yeah, they can look they're at looking it. They're at light say, items oh and they see they're going, million. Hey, dollars. What's, what's 60 like, million? Uh, Right. Dismissing. Which is a problem, OG, that we've had with some of these crowdfunding platforms anyway, because to Stephen's point, you know, accredited investors are people that generally have a high net worth. They're people that if they lose the kind of money that represents the relatively small sum that Stephen's talking about, they can shrug it off because this is probably one of a bunch of things. But we get into crowdfunding we then end up with investors not as sophisticated, thinks this is the way a lot of people buy real estate, and we get sucked in with too much money into this platform. And then we find that these promises these companies make don't happen. In fact, a Wall Street Journal review this piece writes, of 104 completed deals and other deals that were aborted or still in process, found that many failed to meet returns suggested in the sales pitches. We see this all the time in real estate, especially people selling this snake oil that we finally, we, you and I had this problem with Fundrise, right? Fundrise uh, back in the early days was selling this idea that somehow real estate, which has been around for thousands of years, they'd picked the lock. They'd done something nobody else could do. Are you kidding me? How are these people all of a sudden smart enough to make additional returns that other real estate investors have never done? I remember their their tagline used to be, engineered for superior results. Well, who the hell doesn't engineer for superior? What if it's engineered for mediocre results? Yeah. <laughs> That's not well, going to bring all, much money. Yeah, this all comes back to the fundamental reason why this stuff exists is because people don't have a plan for what they need to do to reach their goals. And if you don't have a plan, then you don't have any idea how close or how far away you are. You just have your, you know, the mental map of what you think. And so you look at your balance sheet when you're 50 years old and go, oh my gosh, I'm so far behind. The only thing I can do is try to hit home runs on every pitch. And the reality is, is that, and, and, and I know you guys have tons of stories of people like this who wake up on their 50th birthday or 55th birthday and go, okay, I got to figure this out and figure it out. So it's not, it's not a life sentence, regardless of where you are to say like, well, I just, I'm just going to be broke for the rest of my life. You need to sit down and you know, work through the planning process of yeah. like, here's where I am, here's where I want to go, and what do I have to do? What changes do I have to make? The reality is those changes aren't going to be fun, right? If you're 50 and you don't have any money saved for retirement, well, you got some work to do. There's no doubt about it. But the answer isn't to throw all of your money and all of the resources that you have into long shots, hoping that you can catch up because you feel you feel behind. Math is a really powerful thing. And you find out, even if you start from scratch at 50, well, you've got a long way to go. Absolutely. You can do it. Well, no, you in can. The and the way. boring way is, frankly, a much, a much better road. Steven, somebody I met at a Camp Fi, Becky Heptig, part of the Catching Up to Fi podcast. Becky and her husband, Steven, you know, they, they started at 50 and have a great story. And none of it was using sexy investments. Yeah. When OG was talking a few minutes ago, that's exactly who I was thinking of. I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah, so they started late. They found themselves at net worth of zero at age 50. And they're in their early 60s, I think, now. 
and they're financially independent and, and they're living a good life is they're not yeah. sustaining themselves on rice and beans. So it can be done no matter what age. There are a lot of people in that same situation that she and Stephen, her husband, uh, were in. And so they have been catering to that niche uh, lately. And they have an online community that's growing super fast. So if any of your listeners are over 50 or feel like they're starting behind, you know, yeah. maybe check out their community. We will link to both Becky's blog and the podcast in our show notes at stackybenjamins.com as well. But, you know, I think this is a great place to leave it, just that it starts with process. Roger Whitney, the retirement answer man, says this. And OG, we talked about Roger's great line last week. We we're talking about bad advisors. It starts with process, not with product. And if you're thinking this product's going to solve my problem for me, you might have you might have an even even bigger problem. Uh, we will go deeper on that topic not only in our show notes where you can read this Wall Street Journal article if you have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, but also in our 201 newsletter where Kevin Bailey does a deep dive. StackingBenjamins.com slash 201 to sign up for that. It comes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays and takes the 101 that we talk about on the podcast and goes deeper into 201 on everything that we discuss. Hey, time for our TikTok Minute. This is a show, Stephen Boyer, where we shine a light on either some amazing work that a TikToker has done or some air quotes, amazing work that a TikTok creator has done. Which one do you think it is in this case? You think it's amazing or air quotes amazing? I'm going with air quotes. All right. Well, let's see. This is a guy who decided that uh, he'd heard a story about Jim Carrey doing something really cool. And he decided that he would do something very similar to get to financial independence. Uh, this is about kind of projecting your future dreams and making it a, making it a reality. Manifesting. Uh, I heard a story about Jim Carrey. Early on in his comedy career, he wrote himself a million dollar check and then post-dated it for like 10 years in the future as a way to motivate himself to become famous. And then when that day came around, he was able to cash a million dollar check to himself. And I did a similar thing, it's uh, called credit cards. And (laughs) the whole time I was like, money isn't real. And then they're like, we want that back. Uh, (laughs) I mean, just just a slight difference, OG. And they're done that, got that (laughs) t-shirt. Just manifest the future using your credit cards. What could possibly possibly go wrong there? That is uh, comedian... Andrew Rivers, and we actually found that on a Facebook reel, but uh, we will also link to <laughs> link to more of his comedy. Hey, coming up, a guy that learned a lot of life lessons about work and life through comedy, where he was the butt of the joke. Oh, gee, uh, how many siblings did you have? Well, they're all still with us, thankfully. Well, <laughs> so presently, I have three. <laughs> How many have you offed so far, OG? Steven, Steven, I know you have at least one sibling who I know and think is a great guy. He actually joined us out in San Diego last year at my book tour, which was really nice. Took some great pictures. But but you're the better looking twin of the two. Duh. Uh, do you have any other siblings, you and your brother? I do not. You do not. All right. But of the two of you... Who was the bully and who got the bullying? I was going to say, we didn't always get along, but uh, just like any brothers, you know, butt heads every now and then. But I'll say we alternated on the bullying. All right. Well, I, I, I think I might be down with Doug on that one where, yeah, right. Whatever, dude. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Who's older, Stephen? Uh, I'm older. 12 minutes. Well, Charles now is a heck of an entrepreneur. We're going to talk about all the lessons he learned about life and about entrepreneurship 
And a four S's strategy that he set up for anybody who either is creating their own path with the new business, or if you're somebody working for somebody else, you still need to be really an entrepreneur, take charge of your own career. But he learned it being uh, what he calls the test dummy of his older brothers. <laughs> often, often he got the butt of the butt of the stuff. It is no surprise though that Doug was the youngest and was the test dummy for oh, older yeah. brothers, like he still is on the show oh, here. My God. I have I have so many stories to share. That could be a special episode or maybe a special portion of an episode because there are lots of uh, me on the receiving end of horrific events in my house. We're going to hear some of those from Charles McCarrick coming up and what you could learn from his childhood. But before that, Doug, I think you got a good trivia question for us today. Sure do, Joe. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And man, I got to say, the day we got a revolving door here in mom's basement was a real turning point for us. Having Steven as co-host and today's guest, Charles McCarrick, on the same show, pinch me. Well, it's a special day for the revolving door because it was on today's date in history that it was introduced. I used to work at a revolving door company, but then I realized that job's going nowhere fast. But today's storyline isn't about me, should be. It's about the revolving door and Ms. Manners. It seems that the revolving door was created by Theophilus Van Cannell, a guy who hated opening doors for people so much, he created one that didn't need help. Luckily, science helped him out because revolving doors are much more likely to keep heat on one side of the door and cool on the other side than a typical door frame. So here's today's question. If you're helping someone with a traditional door, you hold it open for them. If you're helping someone with a revolving door and practicing good manners, how do you do that? I'll be back right after I politely go tell Joe's mom that maybe she needs to apply some deodorant after working in the garden. Stackers, you've heard the bad news. Mint is shutting down. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, well, there is some good news. There's a better alternative. Monarch Money, it's what Cheryl and I use to manage our money. I, as you know, advocate a weekly meeting, and Cheryl and I live by that weekly meeting. We sometimes miss it, but we get back on the horse and half the reason is, is because we consistently get updates and reminders from uh, Monarch money. I'm a notifications off kind of guy, but with Monarch, I want to see the notifications because it helps us collaborate. We have our goals right next to the short-term spending that we have when we open up the app so we can see exactly what we're truly going for. And, you know, compare that thing in the moment that we want with what's the long-term goal. It's truly the next generation of personal finance apps. If you've been frustrated that there's ads all over your app or it's difficult to use or doesn't get updated, the Monarch people were too. And that is why they built a new kind of personal finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and constantly improving based on customer feedback. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, your investments, your transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you head to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. You're going to get to kick the tires for 30 days, which I absolutely love because you want to make sure that it's for you. And I think the longer you use it, the more you will see. 
like I did, that uh, it's intuitive, number one. It has this very simple design that makes it easy to set up, customize, and use. It's easy to collaborate. Uh, Cheryl has her login. I have mine. We can set up how we want. And you can send it to your financial advisor as well to have them have a login, anybody who's on your team. And you know what? No extra fee for that, which is amazing. It's all customizable, customer-focused, ad-free privacy you can trust. They'll never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. So after trying out Monarch for myself, I get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, you can try too with an extended 30-day free trial. All you have to do is go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com slash deals. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's annoyer and basement super smeller, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. While it might not be great for your health to tell Joe's mom to apply deodorant, it is a great idea to install a revolving door in your building. Did you know that revolving doors capture at least 30% more energy savings in many cases? It's true! And also is the answer to today's Ms. Manners trivia question. If you're hoping to win over a big deal, you know, to score more Benjamins, you hold the door open as a gesture of being polite. However, approached with a revolving door, what's the polite thing to do? When faced with a group of people and a revolving door, it's polite to actually go first, helping everyone move the door along. That ensures the person behind you doesn't have to push or even touch the door. And as an extra bonus, you get through first without looking like a complete jackhammer. And now, to help you be the opposite of a jackhammer at work, let's say hello to Charles McCarrick. And I'm super happy sitting down at the card table. Charles McCarrick is with us. How are you, man? I'm fantastic, Joe. How you doing? Well, I am great. After reading your book, Charlie, I'm surprised that you're alive. Frankly, I think I thought your brothers <laughs> thought your brothers were going to kill you. You know, I get that a lot. And looking back, it seems entirely normal. But uh, as an adult, you're right. I mean, if uh, I would never allow our kids nowadays to do the sort of things that went That's on right. then. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into some of the stories. But the story that reminded me of my childhood was. You guys would play this game in the snow in Massachusetts, I think was where you were, and you'd take yep. this red rag, each brother would take off their shoes and everything, they'd go like barefoot and run across this snowy field to advance the rag. You mind starting there to talk about the kind of uh, kind of stuff that would send uh, uh, protective services after a family today? <laughs> <laughs> well, this was me, my older brother Dickie, and my brother Young and Michael were involved in this, and we were snowed in. I think it was the blizzard of uh, 76 or something like that. Oh, yeah. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't drive anywhere. The snow was really deep. It was over you know, 24 inches of snow going. So there was very little to do inside the house. We were getting bored. So we invented this game where you had to run out in the snow barefoot. 
and you had to carry this wash rag. It was a red and white checkered uh, flag, uh, wash rag that the first person would run out, drop it in the snow, and then run back. The, the second person contestant would follow the footsteps, pick up the rag, and keep it going further and further from the house. You wanted to move the flag back, you, but you wanted to get back before you got frostbite too. Oh my gosh, right. your feet would be killing you. But we would have a, a wood stove going where uh, you could immediately throw your bare feet up against the wood stove and get ready until your next term came up. Well, uh, as I described in the book, this is all going well and good until uh, we let out the dogs. Uh, not to do this, but what they did was they followed my brother Michael out and I saw what he was up to and they grabbed the rag and they just took off. Oh. Now, Michael, I don't know if this was fortitude or just plain foolishness, but he went chasing after the dogs who ran all over the place. And there's going on and on and on. And me and my brother Dickie in the house saying, where's Michael? What's going on? And finally, he comes panting and crying and his legs are beat red. We had to pick him up and bring him in. He couldn't even speak for the longest time and finally says, and we were asking, why are you holding the rag? He said, the dogs ran off with the rag, he said, between sobs. And I chased them down. So I said, oh, you know, well, oh, God bless you. And that was the end of the game. The next day we went out. And he ran everywhere. He ran across the railroad tracks. I mean, oh, my goodness, Michael, what he did. And it was a... It was amazing he didn't get frostbite, but those were the kind of games that uh, we'd play with my brothers. Yeah, I was I was thinking, uh, Charlie, that it's called Pain the Game, you know, Pain colon the game that you guys yeah. would often play. Like, who, who can endure the most? You said yeah. your brothers were all about your education, uh, and they also said you were a slow learner, which meant that you probably, you probably got a little bit from them. I, I made the determination that I was a slow learner because they keep having to give me the same lesson again and again and again. And so that's why I said apparently I was a slow learner now. I said they were passionate about my education, but that's that's really a joke. They're more sure, passionate yeah, yeah. about making uh, entertainment for themselves at my, uh, our expense. You were the youngest of, of how many kids? Uh, there were six of us, and I was the second to the youngest. My brother Michael was the youngest, and okay. I was uh, five years older than Michael. So it was good that the, uh, that the dogs went after him being the youngest then. He took the brunt <laughs> of it. <laughs> well, yes, but you know, I, I give him credit for not giving up. I love how you take these early life lessons and transform them into business lessons because I feel like a lot of us don't equate the two, and yet there's so much that we can learn from our experience, whether it was positive or negative, and certainly on your end, you had a lot of both. But I want to start off with this. You say that people always ask you how to start a business, right? How do I get my business going? But you wrote that you think the real question should be, why do I want to go into business? Explain the difference and why that's important. Yeah, you start a business based on whatever it is that's driving you and motivating you, you know, the why of starting a business. And people are motivated for a lot of different reasons. There are very good motivations that are going to drive you. And there are some motivations that if you want to do it simply for more money or think, you know, you're having some freedom and uh, you're going to have less responsibilities. Those aren't the right motivations. The right motivation would be something like that. You are a person who immense curiosity and uh, you have the uh, intellectual wherewithal to pursue some sort of a design or uh, whatever business that you're putting forth. I mean, something that's really driving you, motivation, strength, you know, curiosity. But simply because you want to leave, you know, a job and you think you're going to get more money, you know, I, I would want that person to think that through because there are going to be times where nothing but the incentive, the motivation is what you have that's going to continue to drive you on. When money runs out, you know, when hope runs out, time runs out, 
the only thing that keeps a good entrepreneur going and pushing through the risk and when logic dictates, you know, to, to, to go back to a, a, a safe paying job, it's that motivation that keeps pushing you and pushing you. When I made the decision to leave corporate America, I knew it was forever. They were going to have to drag me back, you know, selling hot dogs in front of Home Depot or something like that. There was no way that I was going to go back to that kind of a, a job where I was at the complete whim of somebody's, uh, or my, my professional career was at somebody else's whim and control. That is what drove me. I wanted to be in control or in charge, making my own decisions that govern my financial well-being. None of that talks about what you hear some entrepreneurs talk about, Charlie, which is this idea about passion for the product. I mean, you know, I had a, back when I was a financial planner, I had a client who made stop signs for a living and, 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 and he was a great business owner, but it seems to me that you had to be passionate about your life. But, but how is that different than being passionate about the thing that you're bringing to the universe? You know, I think that's secondary. I think if you enjoy a good sweeping of the broom, and cleaning up afterwards, like I love cooking and I really have great passion for that or making a sewing of various other things. But those things that I have great passion for, I do it as a pastime, mostly for myself. The thought of doing that for money, I think would, would taint it and change it for me. Uh, now, I am very good at antenna design and I'm a good engineer. Uh, do I have a passion for it? If, if I had a choice between doing that and fishing, I'm going to choose fishing <laughs> all day, every day. But it's something I'm good at. It's something that, you know, I know how to, you know, and I know how to bring to market and I know where I fit in the industry. So that works for me. So, so this passion thing, I get it, but, um, I don't know that bringing something, it, it's, I would say, if we were going to be honest with ourselves, it's more of an obsession than yeah, passion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's good. And that obsession, I think, grows the more you get into it. I bet you got more obsessed with antennas the more you knew about antennas and you knew kind of the science behind them and how to make them better. Well, the reason I call it obsession is every waking moment I was thinking about antennas. I was having conversations with people and I learned how to nod my head and blink my eyes, but I'm thinking I was solving antenna problems in my head. Uh, I'd go to sleep well, thinking be, about antenna problems. You must be great, Charlie, at dinner parties thinking about antennas. I can imagine you in the corner just regaling somebody on antennas. No, no nobody wants to hear it. And you know, what do you do for a living? Antennas? Oh, good. You know, and then you know, they turn away. And of God, yeah. So you're not going to make any friends socially talking about antennas. You know, nobody wants to hear it, and uh, and I can hardly blame them. But you know, once you get me started, forget it. Now for you, your business, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people that take control of their life, even if it is as an entrepreneur, frankly, they need to change their life working in a company comes from this inflection point where things aren't going the way they want. That was clearly the case for you. You were working at another what, antenna business for around 20 years and it was being sold. That's right. About 16, 17 years. And then it got acquired. And uh, I put it that I was a uh, casualty and an acquisition gone horribly wrong. But I always had in my mind anyway that uh, I was eventually going to start my own business, even you know from a younger age. But uh, I was content at that company up to that point, and uh, everything I really needed was there. Uh, I didn't, uh, striking out on my own and taking the responsibility and all the risk that went that was associated with it, it wasn't worth it to me because I had a nice secure job, which I thought was stable. But then some other company came in, as you pointed out, and they bought it, and I was... <laughs> I was about as useful to them as the you know the the table or any other corporate assets that exist in the company. So once I came to that realization, I said I'm done. But that's so frustrating because 
you know, there's some business owners that listen to the show. There's leaders of other people. And clearly they could have kept a guy like you who, you know, wasn't going to make this huge life move had they done the right thing. What did they do specifically that you would advise managers to rethink that might have kept Charlie working at that company instead of going off on your own? One thing that I hear with mergers and acquisitions going wrong is that many times the new company coming coming in does not appreciate the culture of the company that exists there and wants to continue to nurture it and help it flourish so that the two cultures can merge into one great company because the lifeblood of the company is, in fact, the culture. That's the people. So the first thing you want to do is get to know the people and especially look at the ones that are the role models or the leaders, as I was as the chief scientist for the company. Instead of coming in and getting to know me and say, Charlie, what do you do for hobbies? You know, what is your life dreams? Where do you see yourself in five years? Tell me about it. There was none of that. What I got instead was Charlie. It wasn't even Charlie. It was Dr. McCarrick. We are, uh, after purchasing this company, we're looking. It's not making us profit as it should be. And I need to demonstrate to my partners that we can make a profit. And so we're going, we want to reduce salaries. I want to reduce your salary by $20,000. And, you know, this about 30 plus years ago, $20,000. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a lot of money now. Back then, it was a hell of a lot of money. No rhyme, no reason, but just so that he could add to the bottom line. Now, I might have considered it if he said, you know, well, look, you know, and once the company grows, we're going to, you know, I want to have a five-year plan for you. I want to see you grow with the company and we will get there. There was none of that. He did not care when I order about me other than how I was affecting the bottom line. I was done. It is amazing. When I read that, I was so horrified by that <laughs> you first. Were horrified. Imagine how I felt. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I wasn't even there and it's 30 years later. Yes. And I'm like, how do you, like the wrong way to just treat people. Like these are just human beings. Even if you, even if that ends up being the conclusion at the end that you have to do that, feeling like it's a person to person versus a you know, I don't know, a pawn in a chess game is the way I felt that you were just another pawn and he didn't care who you were, or what it was. I'm just going to slash and it didn't matter. But for you in this inflection point, you have to make a decision, Charlie, and you have to go from playing what a lot of people play. The game is I'm playing not to lose, right? I mean, so many people playing the game of life, not to lose. And you had to decide I'm not playing not to lose anymore. I'm playing to win. And this was a key message you got from, from your brothers because your brothers, when you were young, you talked about you would play games with your brothers not to lose. You and Michael, I think, uh, were kind of beaten down if you won. Talk about the games of not playing to win, but playing not to lose when you were growing up. Okay, a couple of things. First of all, if you recall the lesson that I talked about when I was describing what happened to me when uh, that merger and acquisition went wrong and I had the meeting with the new owner. I was out feeding the dogs and we had the dog Honey and the dog Honey stretches le her leg and kicked a piece of dog into my mouth while I was singing. So my mouth was open for it. And, you know, what, what a shock. So appalling and so gross. I could not spit it out because it was like spitting out mud. And the more I tried to spit and move around, it just coated my mouth. So, you know, I ran to the house crying. My brother Dickie said, oh yeah, you're going to die. And, uh, you know, my, my mother helped me. But the thing is, the reason I use that is because I had a choice, right? a horrible choice, but I could either have swallowed it or refused it and spit it out, which I did. I refused it, right? I rejected it. But if I had swallowed it, I would have been swallowing for the rest of my life. And it was the same thing with this encounter. If I had accepted 
this so-called proposal of knocking my 20,000, you know, of becoming a, a bump in the bottom line, that's would have defined my career forever. I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to swallow it. So at that point, I knew I had to move on my own and take my own responsibility, playing to win, to succeed, as opposed to playing not to lose. There's a huge difference there, right? Because uh, we used to have Olympic races, yeah, my brothers and I. You'd run around the track. And it was Billy and Hank teamed up against me and Dickie because we were the closest in age. While they would chase us around, uh, hitting us with uh, – my brother Hank said it was uh, briars, but it was holly branches, as I remember. They, they would whip us with the holly branches to get us to run faster and faster. And so we wanted to win, right? We wanted to get across that finish line for us. Not so we could be victorious because it was losing – was a horrible thing because if you ever see the Olympics, you know, you hear at the end, do, 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 right? You know, there's the Olympic theme song that goes, well, what happened is the losers, right? The winners would piss on a stick and the, the losers had to pick it up in their teeth, right? This While is so horrible. My other brothers were playing, you know, the Olympic theme song. You had to hold it in your teeth until they finished playing the Olympic theme oh. song. So who wants to do that? Losing was so worse than winning that you know you did not want to lose so uh if getting across the finish line first is avoiding that that's a no-win game right so that's what i'm talking about uh, and it was the same thing with that encounter that i had with that new company had that come in it was a no-win game i knew that there was yeah. not going to be yeah. any winning there was just going to be trying every day not to lose yeah, so so frustrating. And by the way, your brothers were so gross. They were just, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I can't believe it's all diff that different because I've some of the people, a lot of people have shared some of the stories they've had with their brothers, and then all that, all that different. Oh yeah. Now being pushed off the barn roof in a wheelbarrow to simulate flight, I'll admit that was dangerous. Uh, or the electric handshake and some of these other things. But yeah, you're right. Some of the stuff was pretty gross now that I think about it. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. Some of the stuff was gross. It just it just kind of reminds me a little of the movie Jackass, where you guys are you guys are the TV show where you guys are are uh, almost daring each other. You know, let's go further. Let's go further. Let's see what we can do. Of course, my brother and I uh, did a lot of the same stuff, but that's for another that's for another podcast. But so your business is born out of frustration. A lot of people say that, you know, I need seed money. I need to make sure that I'm up and running, that things are going to go, you, you know, smoothly. You write in this project that if you've got two weeks worth of money, you're able to go. Talk to me about this idea of moving from this secure job over into the world of entrepreneurship. When I talk about the thing that drives a person, what motivates you, what's pushing you forward, I've heard so many people say, oh, I'd start my business if I had about a year's worth of work ahead of me. A year's worth of work ahead of you? The co company doesn't have a year's work ahead of her. Or if I had two years or if it's six months, eight months. And uh, I said, well, the, just forget it. You can't, you know, that's not what an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur lives day by the day, week by week. You know, shoulders that risk is working hard, is almost hungry for the next job and is excited by the fact that they are be driven to the next job. When I had left the company, I said I had roughly two weeks of potential work ahead of me. I knew I couldn't expect six months or a year worth of stability or pay in front of me. I had to start out from ground zero when talking to a couple of people who said, yeah, we think we can give you some work. Yeah, we'll throw us a little consulting your way. And I added up, well, that's enough money to survive for two weeks. Good enough. And off I went. But I had zero weeks. I still would have done it. 
But when I give advice to others, I say, look, your threshold cannot be six months, a year, two years. I mean, that's ridiculous. If your threshold is greater than a week or two, you really should think whether or not you have the motivation to do this or at least a plan in place that's going to guarantee that because what you're describing at that point is something you already have. Yeah, you're looking for security, not opportunity, I think. That's a, that's a really good point. And you have security or you, at least you have the uh, the illusion of security, you know, working for the job that you have. Uh, but opportunity, right, comes in many flavors and, uh, and is often disguised. Uh, but as an entrepreneur, a smart entrepreneur recognizes the opportunities because they, they, they come along as obstacles and then you realize it's an opportunity. That's what a, a good entrepreneur does, transforms obstacles into opportunities. You have organized your thoughts into, into really a four-step process, four ideas around, around running a business. You call them the four S's. At the end of our time here together, Charlie, I'd like us to just take a second and talk about what these four S's are. First of all, the idea of the four S's, where did that come from? Well, after I read the book and uh, after writing it and I was reading through it and I realized there was, there was a character trait that existed, sort of a theme that was a thread that tied the entire story together. And as I broke it down, I said everything was based on people, one or two people coming together and making this decision. The decisions they made were based on character. Character, of course, is developed during times of adversities. When you face an obstacle, that's when character is developed, good character, bad character. And when we got into trouble, usually there was somebody of bad character involved. We got through with it. Usually our good character took us through. And I realized that these character traits came down into four different categories. Two of them were ascribed to, I say, personal, a human character. And the other two were uh, character related to the business or the company for a total of four Characters are four S's. The S's come with each of these character categories, begin with the letter S. Number one is saleability. That means you, uh, saleability can be like, likability. I mean, the ability to sell yourself. It's how you emote yourself to the world. You know, how you represent yourself, whether you bring value to a transaction, to a relationship, to a discussion. People like you. I'm sitting down talking with somebody like you. I see your eyes are twinkling. You're very intelligent. You're a person I could see right away that I would like it. We would get along with. It doesn't take long to figure that out. You have good sellability. The next S like, is- stop, s- stop, stop, Charlie. Keep going. Stop, keep going. Stop, keep going. <laughs> no, we, uh, but I do want to say something about that. When I first saw these four S's, I want to stop and let our Stacker community know about this. I thought saleability was around product. But the fact that the product is you gets back to that character thing you're talking about, which I think so many entrepreneurs under, and not even entrepreneurs, people inside business that are trying to get the next job, trying to get their boss's attention, trying to impress a customer. It isn't about the product as much. People buy from people. And it's, I don't know, I th- th- that one just really hit me hard, Charlie, because I feel like people look at saleability in a completely different way than you do. And I thought there's a big refreshing aha there. Well, people buy from people, and uh, the the product is interesting and important, but that's more of the obsessive thing as opposed to the the passion. The product almost doesn't matter. There's entrepreneurs in every walk of life, every type of industry, you can be successful. The product is almost immaterial. You just, you know, and it's a given that you have a product that you're going to build the company around. And that's where the second S comes in, is sensibility. Again, sensibility is the situational awareness that you have as an individual, uh, understanding what the industry needs are, uh, such as you don't want to 
sell another Coca-Cola, right? Because that's fairly well covered. So you have to bring something that's new and valued, something if uh, hopefully that's not a commodity, something that's special that is going to distinguish you. That's what I mean by sensibility. Now, that sensibility towards the product, sensibility towards the transaction is you have to know who you're talking to and who you're dealing with. You know, uh, it's easier to spot a snake uh, but as far as a, a snake personality, that might be a little bit more difficult to, uh, uh, to discern. And so you have to be sensible, sensible of who you're dealing with, the transactions that you're getting yourself into. And of course, it goes without saying that the product that uh, you uh, or service that you're offering is something that is going to fit a need in the industry that uh, you're going to be able to uh, build revenue off of. Yeah, to, to me, the big aha here was, Sensibility, truly, I think, Charlie, is a lot about listening. I think you really make that point because you can't you can't sell a product until you listen to the market. And if you're trying to sell yourself again internally to your boss, until you know your boss, you know what they're actually looking for, and you know the other people competing for your boss's attention, you can't find that niche that you're really looking for. So I think in sensibility, there's there's got to be a lot of listening. I'm thinking about there's your brothers who are going to have some fun with you goes all the way back to Sun Tzu and the art of war, right? Which is the best, ba- the <laughs> best, right. the best battles. The one that's never fought is exactly what you're saying. Yes, that that's right. Yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, which brings us to sustainability. Okay. Sustainability is something that's more involved. It's, it's the transformation of you as a person and the team as a company. Now, a business, of course, is something that you could put down the paper. You'd see the accounting, you see the transactions that take place, bills of materials or whatnot. I distinguish a business from a company as a company is now a group of people or a team that bring life to the business. And now you have culture starting to develop. Well, so with uh, with sustainability, now you have a team of people running a company that is not dependent on any one person, any one particular piece of equipment, or for that matter, one customer. Because if those things drop out, right, then the company is over. Let's say that I'm a one-person business, right, and uh, and I quit. Well, the business is non-existent because it, it doesn't sustain itself. If you don't have a business that's sustainable, then what you have is a job. And a job is okay, right? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If it's bringing in the income and it's, you know, it's fulfilling your needs. But it's, this, it's different from a business because a sustainable business, a culture is beginning to form, processes are starting to be put into place, and you have a plan of action that includes an objective, tactics, and the strategy that links the two of them together. Those are key for sustainability. When I first got business coaching, the very first thing the business coaches taught us was that you, the same two hands that made your business successful are the same two hands you got to get out of your business. Because (laughs) (laughs) I like that. You just got to, to go to the next level, you can't continue to just rely on those two hands. So it's exactly what you're saying. Last we have then, of course, and that leads to scalability. To emphasize your point, I was always trying to make myself non-essential to the company so that it would grow grow beyond me. Uh, for scalability, now, scalability, you think of something that increasing in size or in magnitude. And I think every business or many businesses want to grow. And what does that mean? What does that look like? And so if your strategy, if you have a strategy with an objective to grow and you set a, a revenue increase and you have a strategy to get there, you need metrics. Right to look at to see that uh, that you could put your hand on as variables that you can make the strategy work, and a lot of people look well. We have more employees, therefore we've grown. We have more revenue, therefore we've grown. We're selling more product, therefore we've grown. I don't think those are the right metrics, and those don't necessarily describe scalability. 
okay, you have more revenue. But what about your profit margin? Is it still at the same percentage? What about the team? Do you still have the quality of the team, the good culture? Do you, are you still following the processes? And last but not least, but most important, what about the product quality? Sure, you've increased quantity, but what about quality? Are you still maintaining the quality that you had in the very first product that set the expectations that when you did the job in the first place? Or is it diluted somehow? Now, the product could be a service. Have you somehow diluted that service where you're no longer talking to people face-to-face at dinner, but now you're talking to them over the phone or you're listening to a recording? That's diluting the human experience or the product itself. Now that you found you're making more of these widgets and you found ways to make them cheaper, have you compromised the quality of the product? So I'd say that a good scalability plan is one that meets the strategy of the company to bring you from the objectives to the tactics, but does it in a way that does, that does not dilute the company, the experience to the customer, the expectations continue to be met, but the culture is growing and it's growing stronger and it's growing better. And you, yes, you, you're achieving all the metrics of, of more revenue, of shipping more product and more space and a bigger team, but you're doing it in such a way that the quality of things are at least as good, if not better than you had in the first place. So that's what I mean by scalability and a good scalability plan. And I have a lot of examples of companies that have exploded and are doing well financially, but in terms I think you know many would agree that the product they sell now is far diluted compared to what they first uh, offered in the uh, in, in, as a startup. Yeah, it's a much more about the machine that you're building, like this self-sustaining um, self-building machine that will continue to flourish over time. Versus I hit it big with a pet rock or whatever, baby, baby, you know what I mean? Whatever it might be. Or in your case, the world's best antenna, you know, whatever, whatever it is. The book is uh, lessons. My brothers taught me how to transform your personal qualities into a successful business. Some uh, slightly disturbing stories about Charlie and his brothers (laughs) (laughs) sprinkled throughout the book and uh, lessons about uh, throwing bullets into a fire. Um, I'm just thinking about uh, not eating your scrambled eggs. Yeah, not eating your scrambled eggs. There's a good one there too. I'll let people uh, read that. But is it, where's the book available? Everywhere. Everywhere. Awesome. And and if you buy it off Amazon and you could leave me a review, I would be so thankful. I, I don't. I wouldn't know how to repay you. But I'll send you a thank you note. We don't get enough of those as authors. I'll say for a guy oh, that had a book out. It's, it's the most difficult thing. It's the most <laughs> difficult thing. I'd rather design the mo- the best antenna in the world than try to go out and get reviews. It's, right. it's not easy. <laughs> well, hopefully we got a few here today. Well, Charlie, thanks for spending time and telling us some great stories and helping our stackers grow. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it, Joe. It was, it was a lot of fun. Hey, this is Andy Hill from the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast. And when I'm not singing Disney karaoke songs with my kids at home... I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Charles for stopping by. And uh, Stephen, we heard Charles talking about all kinds of uh, fun stuff with with older brothers. But I think this gets back to life, right? It isn't you people at Camp Fi all the time who talk about bad things that happen to them. And some people choose to dwell on those and it defines them. And you've, I mean, heck, I've seen it at Camp Fi's. You got other people that learn from some of this negative stuff and create this beautiful world out of negative experience. It truly is about what we do with it, not what happens to us. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we always have a choice, right? You know, I think uh, you probably hear a lot about victim mentality and either you can you can learn from um, when things go not your way. Uh, you can kind of invest those lessons into an optimistic mindset and move forward uh, and just create a beautiful more beautiful life for yourself moving forward. 
Um, and it seems like a lot of people uh, in the FI community that come to these camps all have that yeah. type of mentality. Um, they're accountable, they're responsible. Um, and you know, you can't control life. Life is going to happen. And uh, it's just like you said, what you do with it is really the most important thing. There was a woman at uh, the Camp FI Southwest that I was at who had lost her job couldn't afford her house anymore and lived in her car for a few months. I don't know if you remember that story. There was, there was another woman who had developed some health issues and decided that she would then, she would then work from home and create her own business because she wasn't able to get to work anymore. Is there one story from camp five that really hit you harder than any of the others? No, no, there's not any, I mean, there, there are standout stories for sure, but none really, really hit hard that, that I think um, if I remember correctly, the, the woman who lived in her car for a while, I think her name was Cindy or Cynthia, that stood out. But no, like they, there are a lot of good stories of people who have turned negatives into positives. Um, and, and what I've heard also is that a lot of people tend to make, what is it, the law of inertia, right? Like if everything's going good, things in motion tend to stay in motion. Right. Uh, but when something goes bad, it kind of like knocks your motion a little bit and it, it impacts somebody to the point where they reassess their lives. And so that, in a way, a negative um, life circumstances are sort of like an accelerant in a way for some people. Like they, it forces them to stop, uh, reassess their lives. And then the money, since money is such a big part of people's lives, you know, they're reassessing their money, how they spend it, where they distribute it, what they value, things like that. And so that is a very common thing with people um, who come to camps. I think that, oh, gee, both uh, Charles and Stephen hit that one on the head right there. It's not the great times that really, that we evaluate, right? When things are going well and I'm high-fiving myself, I'm not evaluating crap. I'm too busy high-fiving myself. It truly is when, when things don't go our way that we, we take good corrective action. Yeah. I mean, you want to think about it like you're winning or learning, right? <laughs> you know, and it's okay to have some wins, but the rest of the time you better be, you better be learning something along the way. Hey guys, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, Stephen, they put what you value first. What do you value first right now? I value my time. I have a 17-year-old son, a 14-year-old daughter. They're both, today was their first day of school. They're both in high school now. They're getting older quick. So I value every second that I can with them until they get old enough and don't want to hang out with me anymore. Man, that time goes quick, though, with your kids, doesn't it? Absolutely does. I remember those days fondly. It says here in my script, uh, Stephen, that it is your loved ones and your time, and that's why they made buying quality term life insurance at Haven Life actually simple. You go to stackybedjamins.com slash Haven Life now for a free quote at Haven Life. They're committed to offering a modern way to buy life insurance. Their application is simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision, affordable prices, and all policies issued by a company that uh, is not the latest crowdfunding platform. <laughs> They're actually backed by Mass Mutual, more than a 160-year-old insurer. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to Daniel. Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Hey, guys, this is Daniel, longtime listener, learner of nothing, seeking advice on disability insurance. My wife got a policy about seven years ago when she was working as a home health physical therapist. At the time, she was clearing six figures. About five years ago, she moved to inpatient hospital PT, where her salary dropped a little. Now we're thinking about dropping down to part-time. In fact, we're taking the rest of the year off. The question is, should we or even can we keep the policy that had her salary at a much higher than it is now and continue paying the high premium? 
or do we cancel it and reapply when we return to work in 2024, but knowing her salary will be much lower than it is when she first got the policy? I know this insurance is to replace lost income should something happen. Hey, look at that. I guess I did learn something. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> Keep up the good work. A little osmosis wow. going on there, Daniel. Thanks for the call, man. And uh, oh, gee, it sounds like Daniel, his spouse is going to stop working. And yet he's asking if he can keep the policy, which has a high benefit. Sounds like somebody's trying to do some insurance fraud here. Is that is that what is that what's going no, on? I mean, when you get approved for any type of insurance, it's based on the circumstances that you're in in that moment. We don't think of it going this direction very often, but think of it like the opposite of your house. So you go get your house insurance and it's insured for whatever you think your house is worth and the rebuild value. And then, you know, 10 years later, something bad happens. What do we hear about? Well, we hear about the fact that the insurance company goes, well, the insurance policy says, is, you know, we're covering this. It's not our fault that you didn't increase your coverage over the last decade and your house value went up. We're only going to cover this amount because that's the contract amount. It's the same thing with your life insurance. You buy life insurance it's approved for a certain dollar amount. The insurance company can't later come back and say, oh, geez, we decided we don't want to cover that million dollars anymore because, you know, whatever, you know, now we only want to pay you 500K. You paid the premium, you had the contract, off you go. And so the same thing is true with disability insurance. When you applied for disability insurance, I guess he's talking about a private policy, you had the circumstances. Here's how much money I make. Here's how much money I'm worth in the economy. And therefore, if something bad happens to me, then I need to have this money to pay my bills. And the insurance company agreed that that was all of the terms that they would accept. You make premiums, they pay you if something bad happens. There's no contingency in there that says you have to continue working in this specific job. You have to keep on working in this, you know, at all, as a matter of fact. What happens if she takes some time off Take a great example of, of he's talking about his wife. So his wife, maybe she has a baby and now she gets disabled and go, can't go back to work, right? There's a lot of, well, what happens then? Well, I haven't been working. Do I not get my disability coverage? Of course not. You still get paid because you have a contract that says if you can't work, then you get paid. The risk that he has is that if he changes, if he stops paying, which is, you know, he's saying, well, I don't need the money, right? Do I need to keep the insurance going? No, probably not. But you can't go back and get it later, right? So when you go to reapply, now it's going to be new circumstances. So you'll save the premiums, you know, and say, well, I don't, you know, we can live on one income. We don't need to have uh, two incomes to support our household or our financial goals. So yeah, from a financial standpoint, you may not need the money today or in the future. But if you decide to go back and get it later, you're going to be reapplying based on your current circumstances, just like life insurance. You cancel your life insurance and say, I don't need this million dollars anymore. Ten years from now, go, oh, actually, I want some. What are they going to do? They're going to make you get some medical screening and check your health records and height and weight and all that sort of stuff. And then they approve you based on the circumstances that you present to them that day. So um, my sense on it is that as it relates to uh, disability coverage in particular, I prefer to keep it because you can't get approved for, you know, being 25 and making a six figures ever again, right? You're like, well, now I'm 40 and I make five figures. Well, you're not going to get the 25 year old six figure rate anymore. You know, it's, you're going to get the, the older person. It's a 25 year old rate better on a disability coverage. I think you've got so many more years to insure 
and, and, you know, you're moving around a little faster at 25 than you do at 40. I would think it would be more expensive for a 25 year old. It's not, no, the premiums are less earlier, mostly because in theory you're paying them longer, right? Like, like if the, if the policy goes until you're 65 or 67, the insurance company looks at this and says, well, we've got the chance of recouping years. the number yeah. that they may pay out to you is, yeah. is, is better. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's really a decision. Daniel's decision, his wife's decision sounds like is really around, do we need this money to sustain our financial goals? If something bad were to happen, if, if the missus can't go back to work when she wants to, because of an illness or an injury, um, will that affect our long-term financial goals? If the answer is no, then you're just trying to decide whether or not, you know, you want the peace of mind. If you do need the money, then it's a real clear choice, which is keep the policy. You know, the reason I joked about uh, disability fraud, OG, was because I think a lot of people think that it's capped at a certain amount of money that you make. So if you're not making any money, that disability coverage won't be any good anymore. But you're saying that's not the truth. The truth is, is that if you have a contract in place and that job went bye-bye, you keep the disability coverage, you prove that you're disabled and you can't go back to work it will still pay based on the original contract? Look, every company is going to be different in how they handle this. So you have to read the policy. This isn't a blanket statement, but that's that's generally how it works. Yeah, it's you have insurance for $6,000 a month. If you can't work for an extended period of time, the insurance company will pay you $6,000 a month. That's just the deal. Thanks for the question, Daniel. And you know what? Normally we'd stop there, but having Stephen with us, I want to address something that Daniel didn't ask a question about, Stephen. But about something he said, which is, we're going to take the next six months off. I heard that a lot the weekend I was at Camp Fi. You see people doing these sabbaticals a lot where they're just taking a break during their career very much at Camp Fi? Yeah, I'm seeing it increasing more and more now. I think people sometimes talk about, or I've been asked about, like, is the Fi movement changing and things like that? But I think what it is, is within the Fi movement, like there's like a process that people go through and they go through different phases. And once people find it, they start accumulating a little bit of a cushion, their perspective changes a little bit from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. And they start thinking, wow, instead of I'm going to hard charge to the to this retirement nest egg, let me start pulling some of the, the benefit, this future benefit that I've created, maybe pull some of it into the present. And that looks like many retirements for a lot of people. So that, that yeah, I'm, I'm really seeing that a lot. And we've had breakout sessions. It's starting to be more and more of a breakout session topic now. Uh, at the camps. Yeah. About like how to do it, the fear that you might not be able to get your job back or how to approach your boss. I'm sure those are some things people worry about. Yeah. Yeah. Those things. Um, if people are traveling, like you hear a lot of people about traveling during these gap years, like how do they get their mail? Uh, you know, just how can they be insured if they're going out of the country and things like that. So yeah, it's really a neat area to look at because, um, once people sort of relieve themselves from the stress, relieve themselves, the stress of, uh, (laughs) They're nine to fives, right? So much can change and, and so many other things can like sort of fill that space. And a lot of times what fills that space is more in line with that person's values and passions. And so it really is uh, something to think about. A mini retirement, sabbatical, gap year, you know, those types of things are really something to look at once you get to a certain point financially for maybe a potentially significant increase in quality of life. I've been following uh, Heidi Dusick from the Ordinary Sherpa podcast. We had her on a roundtable, OG, if you remember. But mm-hmm. she this wasn't just a gap year for her. It was for her entire family. Took the kids out of school for a year and everything. And they now are in Alaska. They just I just saw about a week and a half ago, got back from a 
trip to the Arctic Circle, in fact, and now just back, I think, in Anchorage. Cold up there. Yeah, yeah. And we'll link to Heidi's Heidi stuff as well. Super, super cool, though, to watch people live in this. I got to say, Stephen, it's just been, you know, surrounded by people like like you and people I've met at Camp Fi. You know, when Cheryl and I decided to be homeless uh, and we thought we were going to be digital nomads, it was also that mini vacation, that mini trial that made me realize that this idea of being a digital nomad wasn't for me. And if I hadn't done, if I hadn't done the, the, the trial run, man, I would have had this big dream in my head that wasn't anywhere near true. So I love this idea of uh, test running what you're going to do later. Yeah, it's good. My very first camp that I ever went to, we talked about it earlier in the show, the Camp Mustache in 2016 that I went to. I remember a lady saying, she was, she was an older lady, maybe in her 60s, but she had said that sort of the point that you made, she said that she always thought that she was going to retire and travel the world. And I think she said like three months in, she was over it. So like you said, it's like, it's like uh, whenever you get rejected and like, you go and you put yourself out there and you get rejected. Well, each no is one step closer to a yes. Well, you're putting yourself out there. You're trying new things. If it's a no, then okay, well, that's that's a no, but let's go see something else. At least now we know. We can go to that next thing that may or may not work. Congratulations, Daniel, on taking that time off. I think that's incredibly valuable and uh, glad that you did that. We're also going to send Daniel a uh, Haven Life Stacking Benjamin's Greatest Money Show on Earth t-shirt for being brave and leaving a question. So if you've got a question for us, head to stackingbenjamins.com slash voicemail. Leave us the voicemail and OG and I, and uh, maybe Stephen, if he comes back, will help answer your question. Hey, that's going to do it for today's show. Just a little bit on the community calendar. One thing, which is Signing up for Camp Fi. Come join me, Roger Whitney, Stephen, and uh, uh, Cody Garrett, Doug Thompson. Doug Doug Thompson. It's funny. I have a friend named Doug Thompson. Let's try Paul Thompson. Doug Thompson may, might be. Maybe I can get Doug to come, Stephen. But I do know <laughs> Paul Thompson is going to be there. Maybe we get OG there. Maybe we get Doug. I don't know. Hopefully. Where's it at? OG. And when is it? Yeah, it's in uh, Denton, which is just north of Dallas. October eighth, 9th, tenth, and eleventh. It's a Friday through a Monday. You check in Friday afternoon, head out around noon on Monday. Weekends in the fall. Probably no. I know that that uh, stinks. But and you could have seen Stephen dressed up as your personal valet, too, uh, which you're going to miss now. But go to either our show notes, stackybedjamins.com, or just go to campfi.org and tell Stephen we sent you, right? Say, yes. say hey, we're, we're, we're coming there specifically because uh, OG's not going to be there. That's why. Hey, I mean, it's close. <laughs> it's right up the road. I can stop by for a quick minute, but... Uh, Saturdays in the fall. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for today. Doug, man, you got it from here. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, first, take some advice from Charles McCarrick. Authenticity in the workplace beats Ms. Manners any day. Second, learn from our TikTok minute and bet on yourself to achieve more. But maybe don't cash that check until you've successfully proven your point. But the big lesson? <laughs> Turns out you shouldn't talk to Joe's mom about revolving doors because she just wants to get into circular arguments all the time. Circular. Arguments. Oh, come on! Thanks to Stephen Boyer for sitting in with us on today's show. You can find out more about Stephen and the amazing campfires happening all over the country at campfi.org. Thanks to Charles McCarrick for joining us today. You can check out his book, Lessons My Brothers Taught Me, How to Transform Your Personal Qualities into a Successful Business, wherever finer books are sold. We'll also include links in our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. 
This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2023, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. This show was written by Lacey Langford, who's also the host of the Military Money Show, with help from me, Joe, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Kevin Bailey helps us take a deeper dive into all the topics covered on each episode in our newsletter called The 201. You'll find the 411 on all things money at The 201. Just visit stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Tina Eichenberg makes the video version of this show. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude and Kate Yunkin are our social media coordinators, and Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. Not only should you not take advice from these nerds, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at the Stacking Benjamin Show. Welcome to the after show, Stephen. This is a part of the show that doesn't exist. What happens in the after show stays in the after show. So if you find yourself, Stephen, having to refer to it later, just call it dessert if you have to. But it's probably better that you just don't. That'd be good. We have a brand new writer on the show, OG. Uh, like to introduce Lisa Curry to everybody. Lisa has written for the Jim Jeffries show, big show on Comedy Central. She also has uh, opened for Jim on tour. She's on tour now going around the country. In fact, she's going to be performing in a couple of weeks in this horrible town called Ann Arbor, Michigan. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but she'll be, she'll be performing. She goes around the country. We'll tell stackers that, that she's coming. Sweet. But the reason I brought this up was Doug, I think it was Lisa who in our prep meeting for the show, wasn't she the one talking about the person with the dog? Was that her or our marketing maven, Kate? Our communications person with the dog. Can you give me a little more to go on? Cause I well, go in and out mentally of those meetings. They too. had a dog. They had like a Pomeranian. The story was about a person oh, with a Pomeranian. God, that was Lisa. That was Lisa. Yeah. We're going to do that one. Oh no. And the dog went first into the revolving door, OG and Steven, and it moved the revolving door just enough that the dog's head got stuck on one side of the revolving door, you know, like, is it go, the dog stuck its head in and then they moved it forward and the head went oh, and went through and they couldn't get 
the head pop right off. <laughs> no, no, it was just a pomeranian. It was, it was just a <laughs> just animal cr- pita. If you have I mean, problems that's like with this, a jalapeno off the bush. <laughs> if you have problems with this pita, uh, write to Doug at snackybenjamins.com. He said it, not us. But uh, yeah, not so good. You guys ever been stuck in a revolving door? No, just this job. <laughs> Wow, was that all? Did you guys plan that as a setup for OG? That was it. We just ran right into pretty the, witty. Yeah. I don't like the ones that are like somewhat motion censored. Oh yeah, me neither. You know, yeah. you're going at a pace. You're like, okay, whoo, 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 whoo. and then the door's Whoa. like, you're like, and you're like, Come. Yeah. and then you're like, you kinda, can't do a thing about it. You're like waving. You're like, I think I need to. Yeah. Do I just back yeah. up, sir? Sir, don't push the door. It'll. Ha-. I'm like, I'm pushing the door. I'm. I want out of this thing. I'm on. I'm yeah. on a mission to get through this. I'm going to push the door. It is hard. You actually got to step backwards because yeah, you're generally. I just, I yes. put my hand up and I just go off. We go. That's what, sir. Don't push. The that's door. the way to fix it. Tough. <laughs> get it out of my way. Steven, you get angry about revolving doors like OG. Uh, no, no. Um, revolving door seems to be like a big city thing, probably more than where I live. You know, I don't, I don't experience the revolving door action a whole lot. Any doors probably where you live, huh? Do they um, even have doors? <laughs> wow. Um, you have indoor plumbing, Stephen? We're getting there. Some of the houses here have them now. Stephen, you just got to remember we're in Texarkana, so we can't throw this stone too hard. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, Texarkana. Because Texarkana. Great town. Beautiful town. Uh, hey, what I really want to talk about, though, Stephen, is we, we do have some questions about Camp Fi. You know, nobody listens to the show. It's just you and me and OG and Doug. I wanted to ask about, like, are there any weird things that happen at campfire like have you had times when so there um, i was minding my own business yeah reading my financial independence <laughs> book and then i never thought that something like this would happen to a guy like me exactly like, a curious bedmate oh all right I, you know this is kind of spur of the moment so i'm sure that i could think of some better ones but i don't know if y'all y'all have had this this guy on your show before but there's a there's a well-known fi blogger his blog. We don't may, need names. Be, we just want salacious details. Uh, uh, there's like this big lead up to you know like eh, story, <laughs> but we were at Camp Five Midwest a couple of years ago, which is up just north of Minneapolis, and they have a pond that you can like. There's a little dock, you know, a rope swing you could swing out, swim in the pond, whatever. It's a beautiful day. We're walking back up to the main house or the main uh, retreat center where we're getting ready for dinner, and we come. Ac- I come across some underwear. That's just sitting in the lawn, right? And we're like, what is going on? Like, whose is this? So the person I'm with grabs it, puts it on, like grabs a stick, picks the underwear up. It's walking in with the underwear. It's like, whose is this? And uh, it may or may not have belonged to somebody with a blog that's somewhere between 1,499 days and 1,501 days. Uh, I don't know if y'all know who I'm talking about, but it, it happened to be his. I don't remember the story about why he has his boxers. Like out in the open, just hanging out in the middle of a field. But uh, maybe if you ever have him on the show, you can ask him about it. I think it would have been better if if you found uh, Mister between fourteen ninety nine and fifteen oh one, and Mrs. between fourteen oh nine and fifteen oh one. You found both of there, yeah. That, yes. that would be, yeah, yes. Which is the question everybody really wants to know because when you think about summer camp, you think about hooking up. What's the hookup rate at Camp Five? <laughs> well, I run a poll um, after every camp. Um, you know, I don't really ask for feedback because, you know, people have said, Hey, you should have feedback cards. You know, people can suggest, 
uh, things to improve or whatever. But I'm a sensitive guy. So I'm like, if people don't like it, they just won't come back. Uh, people keep coming back, so that's good. But instead of doing feedback cards, I like to poll people. I'm like, how many times did you hook up? Was it with just one person? Was it with two people? Nice. Um, all those stats I keep privately. So I'm not really going to put it out here on your show. But uh, but yeah, it, it happens. Is there a non-zero chance someone's going to hook up? Uh, I can't there fly. is a non-zero chance, I'm sure. That's all that, we need. Uh, okay, the thing... The th- <laughs> Doc G was my roommate. I'm just going to say we had oh, a wonderful God. time. We had, we had a yeah, fantastic. I remember getting your feedback for him. Yeah, that was interesting to read. <laughs> I was just happy Doc G didn't snore. That's what I'm sure I did, but I'm I'm very happy he didn't snore. So if anybody want to know about Doc G, he does not snore. So there you go. Good to know. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union can help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. Well, if you're thinking consolidation, that's part of your plan. You could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. What I like, you make your plan first and then you use the appropriate instrument to get you there. And Navy Federal has them. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loan subject to approval.